Hello, and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter, joined by Jim Pugh and Sandhya Nantharaman. Great to be with you guys. Great to be here. Yeah. So, in past episodes, we've had a lot of great conversations with people all over the world who are pushing for and fighting for the basic income. In this one, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have a conversation to introduce various issues around the basic income, what it is, what are the common concerns, what are the benefits, what has been done on it so far. And so to kick us off, uh, Sandhya, what is the basic income? Yeah, so um, universal basic income is a pretty simple government program. Basically, there's three main components. First, basic income is cash. It's a cash grant that you get from the government with absolutely no restrictions on how it's used, no restrictions on what you buy. Basic income typically is enough to cover basic living expenses, things like food and housing, and it's universal, which means that there's no restrictions on what you do when you get it. So you can work for yourself, you can work for a company, you can not work, you can take care of your parents, Um, everyone gets it. And that kind of differentiates it from more or less any social program we currently have where either you have to be a certain age or a certain level of income or below a certain level or you've you know, recently been laid off or something along those lines. But there's almost nothing where you just get it no matter what. Exactly. Yeah, and that's, while on its surface it may sound very similar to a lot of what we have and that distinction may seem small, if you think through the implications of basic income, uh, they can actually be pretty profound. One key part of it is because basic income is actually enough to cover all basic needs, it means that you're not having to stitch together a bunch of small programs, which is what we have right now. And because those programs are conditional, it means you're often dealing with a separate application process. You may not even know they exist. And so a lot of people who actually may qualify for the support that they would need to sustain themselves aren't getting it. Um, Whereas with basic income, because of the universality, it means everyone is getting it all the time, so you don't actually have to worry about that. Yeah, another big benefit that I've heard a lot of people talk about is what really brought them to basic income in the first place is the stability it provides as we look ahead into the future of work, in particular looking at how advances in technology are really starting to disrupt the labor market. We're seeing these crazy new tech services or tech products that are allowing us to do things that have never been possible before. But a lot of those advances are also changing the way that jobs look. And what in the past seemed like steady jobs may suddenly shift to something that is much more precarious. People may be much more at risk of Uh, either losing their job entirely or having the work they do be turned into something that is done through the gig economy or something where it's really harder to count on your income. Um, So having that floor of basic income where you know that you'll have that, uh, that money coming in to cover your basic needs can be pretty attractive when thinking about that future. Yeah, I think we you can see the sort of previous structure, the previous expectations around work in unemployment insurance, where you lose your job, you get was it six months? Yeah. Uh, of you know something like a, a living wage or a basic wage to kind of tie you over, and then it's expected that you get your next job that you'll have for a few years or you know maybe even a few decades. 
and that reality i mean if just if you think about how people change jobs today and you know how people can how quickly people can lose their jobs these days uh that reality is being upended and so yeah it may be time to think about a new way of uh ensuring stability uh, as things start moving faster and faster yeah and that brings up a really good point i mean you know Jim, a lot of people are interested in basic income because of the automation angle. But I think even now that we're already seeing a lot of effects of automation today. Um, you know, the increasing gig economy, as you said, Owen, means that a lot of people are working more than one job in order to sustain their lifestyle. And one benefit that I don't think we talk about enough of basic income is that with the stability of something like a basic income also gives you the opportunity to fight for better working conditions. So a lot of gig economy workers these days work as contractors, which means they don't get access to basic benefits like health care or even sick time days off, um, paternity or maternity leave. And the basic income would give people an opportunity uh, to say no to jobs that don't provide them a basic level of benefits. Absolutely. And I think that extends beyond just gig economy. If you look at some full-time jobs that exist today, there are situations that people are really, really trapped in these pretty low-paying minimum wage jobs, really bad working conditions, and if they had that basic income, they would have the option to leave. And if you think about, you know, when you're, you're negotiating maybe for higher pay or just negotiating the terms of your job, usually the giant factor there is what's your next best offer? You know, if you don't take this job, what do you have? And with a basic income, everyone has, you know, whatever it is, $10,000 a year, $12,000 a year. So if the conditions get too onerous, eventually you can just say, no, I'm not going to do that. And you have at least uh, a safety net to fall back on. Uh, Yeah. One really interesting description I've heard in the past for basic income is that it's basically a national strike fund. Right now, if you work in the labor space, it can be hard to effectively bargain if you're dealing with a big company and you're really struggling to get by. But if you have that freedom to walk away, not only does it empower you at the individual level, but it also means that you and your fellow workers all have a lot more uh, leverage when you're trying to work with the company to get better conditions. Yeah, and sort of along those lines, uh, another major benefit of the basic income that, that gets brought up a lot is that it values unpaid labor. And there is a lot of unpaid labor that we've kind of woven into our society but but doesn't get valued in any kind of monetary way. So the most obvious one is parenting. Um, you know, if you have a, a very young... I do have a very young baby, and <laughs> someone's got to be watching him at all times, and either that's someone that my wife and I are paying or it's one of us or both of us. Um, and beyond parenting, you know, there's community service, there's... Um, you know, just being a, a good neighbor, there's... Um, Taking care of old parents. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously that becomes more and more of an issue as, uh, you know, the, the boomers age and the next generation ages. And Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one thing that basic income allows people to do is be able to have buffer when you have a parent that falls sick or you have, you know, a family emergency. There's, as you said, a ton of unpaid labor out there that we just expect people to do and don't give a way to value that. And finally, I think one of the big things that you know we could benefit from with the basic income is more equity of opportunity. 
Um, depending on whether you grow up with a family that provides support for you or not, your things like your educational path might look really, really different from other people's. So if you grow up in a family that's able to help you pay for college or at least provide support to make sure that you can pay for room and board, your college life might look and the things that you get involved in and the, you know, the chances that you have to work unpaid jobs might look really different from someone who's paying their way through school, working on scholarships. And that's not just through school, but extends to things like pursuit of the creative arts and entrepreneurship. So, you know, if you don't have the opportunity to take six months off and live with your family so that you can start the next big company, you might not ever take the opportunity to be an entrepreneur or take the opportunity to be a creative artist, you know, when you have to struggle a little bit before you really find success. Um, yeah, I think entrepreneurship in particular is something that interests a lot of people here in the Bay Area. Folks are starting to realize that there is a limit to who currently has access to even pursuing your idea for a brand new company just based on the situations that you come from and that there's a lot of people out there who may have amazing ideas for things they could do that could really change the world, but they're not able to pursue them because they're not able to take that risk. If you have that income floor covered, you can take time off, you can spend the time to really pursue your idea and see if it has legs. So those are some of the major benefits of the basic income. Definitely not a comprehensive list, but but one to at least get us started. We also wanted to address a lot of the concerns that come up. And most of these you can find just by bringing up the basic income in a crowded room. Many of these will, will come up naturally. So the first and most obvious is how do you pay for it? And this is a big enough topic that we are going to do an entire episode on it at some point. Uh, for now, I guess I'll just say that you can pay for it. Obviously, you just need to make it a, a priority in, in your national budget or your state budget or however you're, on whatever scale you're doing it. Um, it. It will generally take up a significant portion of that budget. Um, and, you, you know, <laughs> you just have to be okay with that. Um, and I would just add to that, I think that something that if you look closely at the system we have right now, you realize that a lot of this social safety net that's there, there are pieces of it that are really acting as stopgap measures towards something like a basic income that actually does bring you up to the poverty line. And so there is a lot of existing programs where you could effectively transition those into um, into helping to fund the basic income, and so that can cover a very significant portion of the cost. Right. I mean, obviously, Social Security is a, a huge portion of the, the U.S. budget, and then you add in things like unemployment insurance, food stamps, and, uh, and yeah, you, you start to see how there's a basic income in there. So one that comes up sometimes is uh, immigration. So it's there's this natural assumption that let's say California enacts a basic income, everyone moves to California. And I think this is something where you can uh, basically deal with it, deal with that incentive through how you structure the basic income and, of course, how you structure immigration. I'll, I'll just point out that the, uh, the immigration bills that have been proposed in the last few years in the U.S. generally involve about a 12-year pathway to citizenship. So even then, we're talking on like a decade-long scale. Children also come up, you know, because a, a kid born in the U.S. is a U.S. citizen. And um, I, I've heard different schemes about how a basic income would treat children 
Um, under some systems, they don't get anything until they're 18. Uh, some maybe they get half what older people get. Um, but again, you, you can structure the incentives that this is less of an issue. Uh, another uh, concern that comes up, that's inflation. Jim, you actually uh, put this pretty well to me a few days ago. I was wondering if you want to just say what you said then. Yeah, th- I think there absolutely is more studies needed on this because we're still figuring out exactly what sort of impact basic income would have. Um, and as we do more analysis and, and are able to look at more examples of, of it being tested out, we'll, we'll learn more from that. But a key thing to note is generally when you talk about inflation, um, the biggest driver of radical inflation is when you're actually increasing the money supply within an economy. If you're talking about a basic income that's funded from existing revenue, where it's coming from existing programs or from additional taxation, effectively it's redistributive, it's not issuing new money. And so you wouldn't expect to see massive inflation in response to something like that. Um, Now, if you're giving people more money and they're spending it more, that is going to drive the economy more and there there will be some inflation that comes along with that. But there'll also be a lot of economic growth. So yes, we should continue to look at this, but also realize that there is a pretty positive side to to that sort of uh, driver of inflation as well. And I think it's worth pointing out where that economic growth is coming from, because you know you give someone $100,000 a year, an extra 10, that's probably not going to change their spending too much. But you know all those people who are making you know zero to thirty thousand dollars a year, that's going to change their spending patterns a lot. And there's going to be new markets for those people, and you know new products that are newly viable. And so it, it will increase the you know the velocity of money, mostly I think in the lower and middle classes. And one last issue that people always bring up around the basic income is that it will enable people to stop working and provide a, a disincentive to, to, to work. And while it's certainly possible that, that that'll be something of an issue or, or just something that will happen, uh, we actually have some evidence on, on this because there have been pilot studies around the basic income. And so why don't we talk about a couple of those? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, there are enough studies and information on cash transfers and on what basic income would look like that I think we'll be dedicating a podcast to it to really dig into the details sometime in the future. Uh, but for now, I just want to talk, give some top lines of two studies that I think are really informative when it comes to understanding what happens when you actually experiment with giving people a basic income. Um, so the first one was this study in 2011. Um, it was in the state of Madhya Pradesh in India. And basically, they gave a basic income grant to adults and then half grants to children in eight different villages in India. And this is a study that was sponsored by UNICEF and this local organization called the Self-Employed Women's Association. Sorry, just for clarification, was that the entire village got it or like certain people in the village? It was everyone in the village. Okay, wow. Yeah. Um, So some really interesting outcomes from this study. Uh, First of all, they saw improved food security for the people that got these grants. So they had more varied diets, greater consumption of fruits and vegetables rather than reliance on the typical like subsidized staples. Um, People tended to spend this money on capital investments. So investing in things like buying more seeds, buying sewing machines, doing repairs on equipment that they owned. 
you saw a lower incidence of common illnesses and people were seeking more regular medical treatment because they had more money to be able to do that kind of thing. And um, there was no more likelihood for people to consume what we consider like vice products. So, you know, people weren't any more likely to buy things like alcohol and tobacco, which is, I think, a question that comes up pretty regularly. Um, So... That's interesting to hear on the capital investments. If people were actually putting that money towards good use, was there any findings around how that had an effect in longer term, the long term economies, people's livelihoods going forward? Well, they did see that cash grants were associated with an increase in the amount of production work that people were doing. And people were tending to do more of their own work rather than doing what they called bonded work. Um, So that was a really exciting finding from this study. Bonded work being working for a boss or something? or Uh, Yeah, and working for someone to pay off debt. And just to say one more thing on capital investments, I think that's exactly the kind of thing that is very hard for a program to anticipate in terms of saying, like, here is money, but you have to spend it on fixing your roof. Or, you know, like, no charity is going to do that. Maybe they'll say you have to spend it on food or, like, we're not giving you cash, we're giving you a cow and it's going to supply you with food. But I think that shows the power of cash transfers, that it's whatever your most whatever you need the most is what you're going to spend it on and most other people aren't going to know that unless they know you personally. Right, and I think that the picture that the India study paints overall is that this, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly just gave people this level of income stability to allow them to plug all of these small holes, right? They made sure that they had enough food for the month. They made sure that they could make some investments for the future. And they weren't as stressed, didn't get as sick, and did more long-term planning, right? us, um, looked for more medical treatment, things like that. Um, so that's a really interesting one. The other one, the sort of major one that gets cited a lot, um, was in Canada, actually. Um, so this was an urban study in a town called Dauphin in Manitoba in Canada. Um, this experiment was really interesting. They did what they called a saturation site, which means that everyone that was eligible in the town got a cash grant. Now, they did use um, income levels to determine eligibility. So that meant that essentially around 30% of people in the town got uh, what they considered a basic income or what they actually called mincome. Um, and the circumstances around this study are pretty interesting. Uh, during it, it was a four-year study, and During that time, the political administration turned over and the people that were put into office weren't interested in completing the study anymore. So while the original participants continued getting money until the end of the study, they actually stopped tracking the outcomes. So this data wasn't analyzed until somewhere in, I think, like 2011, when a researcher named Dr. Evelyn Forget used universal health care data which that program was implemented around the same time as the experiment was being done to learn about some of the outcomes that these people that went through the study had. Um, and I think she was literally like, you know, finding like pieces of paper in a like some dusty file cabinet. Yeah, somewhere. yeah, it was crazy. She found like they'd never done anything with the data, so it was like eighteen hundred boxes of paper in a warehouse somewhere. It's amazing. Um, which was nuts. 
so some of the things that she found, um, again, hospitalizations went down. So just like we saw in the India study, people were not suffering from routine illnesses and were able to take medication more frequently. Um, high school completion rate went up, particularly for boys. And, you know, from talking to some of the people in the study, she said that what she had found was that typically these boys, especially for poorer families, were had a lot of pressure before getting income to start earning for the family. But when they had this sort of basic level of stability, it was easier for families to let these, you know, their sons continue high school and actually get that degree, uh, which is really important. And then, you know, again, to that sort of will people stop working concern, they actually saw that hours worked barely went down for adults. Um, the biggest decreases that they saw were for secondary earners, primarily women, especially ones that wanted to take off for maternity leave. Um, and that speaks to what we were talking about earlier with valuing that labor that is unpaid in the traditional sense, but people actually had a chance to effectively receive payment for it here. Exactly. Yeah, and I think both of those studies show kind of the unexpected power, some of the counterintuitive stuff or just unintuitive stuff that you you get when you have a basic income. So yeah, I think healthcare um, spending going down, I think is particularly poignant because it's hard to draw a direct cause and effect line to that happening, but you can understand how if people are out of poverty, they're, they're probably not you know, going to have as many severe health issues. Um, and that's something that I think there is a fair amount of recognition for at this point, that when you look at it at a national level in particular, poverty is expensive. If people don't have enough to get by, it's putting, it really puts like an economic cost on a country. And so when we think about the cost of basic income, we shouldn't think about it as just like we're spending this money. We should think about it as an investment in the future of our people. And one great little example of that is uh, the state of Utah has started giving their homeless people apartments and, you know, just, you know, no, uh, for, for no cost. And they're actually saving money doing this because they're spending less money caring for these people and dealing with, you know, repeated health care incidents and, and whatever else uh, because they've, they've got a home and some basic social programs. So why don't we, we finish this off by talking about what is driving the basic income conversation today? Yeah, so many listeners may have noticed that over the last year, year and a half, the conversation around basic income has really picked up. You're starting to see far more attention in the media. People are starting to talk about it more, view it as not just some pie-in-the-sky dream, but actually a legitimate policy idea that we should be thinking through. And there's a couple of reasons why the conversation has really ramped up. A big one is that, you may have heard, Switzerland voted on whether to establish a national basic income earlier this year, in June. Uh, Their basic income would have given everyone uh, in the country uh, the equivalent of about $2,400 every month, so really a full basic income. And they did a really effective job of driving attention to the issue as part of their campaigning. They kicked off with this big visible event where they dumped 8 million coins in front of the Swiss Parliament building, one for every citizen of Switzerland. And then as the vote approached earlier this year, they actually crowdfunded the production of the largest poster ever created. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records now. It says, what would you do if your income were taken care of? And they had some great overhead shots of that that were uh, used in all sorts of media pieces and, and really helped to draw people's attention in. 
along the same lines and around the same time, you're starting to see other countries around the world take the idea very seriously. And in fact, some are already have experiments in the works. Uh, Finland has been planning an experiment for a little over a year now and should be launching that soon. The Netherlands as well. And also in Canada, Ontario is, is working on an experiment and it's being discussed seriously there. Some other big developments. One is the nonprofit GiveDirectly is going to be conducting really a massive basic income experiment in Kenya. That'll be starting this year in just a month or so. Um, it's going to run for 10 years, so we may not have results right away from it, but it's going to be a very large and rigorous experiment, so there should be a lot of great data coming from that. And another one very close to home for us is that the startup accelerator Y Combinator is actually doing a basic income pilot in Oakland, California. They're going to be giving some number of people between 25 and 100 uh, basic income for one year in order to see logistically what it looks like to provide people with basic income in the U.S. And I know they are also considering doing a much larger study if that pilot goes well. All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you, Jim and Sandhya. Thanks, Owen. So if you like this and like the podcast generally, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast. Also, we love hearing from our listeners. You can tweet at me directly. I'm just at Owen Poindexter on Twitter. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. And thanks for tuning in.